and welcome to the HTB Discipleship Podcast. I'm Susie. And I'm Alex, and we are part of the discipleship team, seeking to find ways that we as a church can engage in our walk with Jesus every day of our lives. Coming up on this month's episode, we are joined by Gideon, who is going to tell us all about his experience on Alpha, how he met with Jesus and how that has transformed his life. We're going to have an interview with Mark Scalata, who is a lecturer at St. Paul's Theological Centre and St. Melitus College here at HTB. And we're going to hear all about how he has spent years researching the book of Exodus. And as we go through the book of Exodus in our Sunday series, we're going to hear some reflections from him. And then finally, we're going to have Amelia join us from our 24-7 prayer room and furnace community, leading us through a prayer reflection. So strap yourselves in. It's going to be a great time. So I'm joined now with Gideon, who has recently been on one of our Alpha courses, and we're going to hear a little bit about how he came to know Jesus and what his life has been like since. So Gideon, tell us a little bit about um, your life before Alpha. Like six months ago, would you have said that you're a Christian, go to church, all that kind of thing? I would come to church very rarely. Um, and who did you used to come to church with? Um, my uh, mainly my brother, my older brother. So okay. he always, he he's come to church quite a lot. Um, yeah. So he uh, well he comes every Sunday actually. Yeah. Um, so he makes it a priority, and I never did. So yeah. if I had a free Sunday morning, yeah, um, I I may go. Uh, and are you quite close him. to your brother? Yeah, he lives just at, both my brothers live just at the end of my road, and we're really close. Yeah, we. Uh, and did you ever see in your brother so, like the impact of him coming to church, having that kind of active faith? That kind of inspired um, you to come a little bit? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, so it's probably hard to pinpoint exactly what. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, for sure. You can see yeah. that people in the church community are happy people yeah. in general, yeah. um, which is, I thought, I found it quite funny. When we were on the Alpha Weekend Away, um, that sort of suddenly clicked with me because um, I always used to think that ev- the reason I didn't like going to church, I used to think everyone was fake yeah. and everyone puts on these big happy smiles and how are you doing and everyone wants to know about you. And I used to think it was all fake. But then, uh, yeah, during the Alpha, Alpha weekend, Pippa was doing a talk about um, one of her friends. I think he was a Dominican friar and he was on the tube by himself. And somebody just said to him, your happiness makes me happy. Mm. And I sort of, and that was when it actually clicked with me that um, it's, they're they're happy because they're, because they found God, not because they're trying to put on a front. That made a big difference for me. Wow. And so your brother invited you to Alpha. Mm -hmm. How did he do that? Was it just a simple come along to Alpha? No, he'd done it a couple of times. So he's done Alpha once before and loved it and... um, tried to get me to, to come along for about two years. And I had previously come to one of his sessions hmm. uh, two or three years ago. Um, didn't sort of, uh, I don't think it was the right time or I'm not really sure, but I didn't enjoy it. Sure. Um, and what was different about this time? I've, uh, maybe my mindset, maybe the group, the m- me being more open to it. Hmm. Um, but yeah, from the start of this, from the start of this alpha, I, th- I really thought that I wanted to, at least just see it through right and um because i think it'd come to a point where i thought to myself am i a christian no right so i I really want to find and my family all my family are and so i wanted to sort of find out whether yeah if if i was if i what basically what i was feeling i wasn't so sure Sure, and cast your mind back to that first uh, that first evening at Alpha. Yeah, what were some of the thoughts you were thinking, some of the feelings that you had going on? Um, 
So I don't like that sort of situation in general. Um, I like sort of uh, being able to leave a situation. <laughs> Get so, your escape for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, like at uni, I'd go in for my lectures I'd, and I'd be straight off. Whereas mm. there's lots of, um, there's lots of sort of, not small talk because it's not small talk. It's quite... Mm. Uh, important stuff that you get to talk about but um it's sort of a situation that I wouldn't have thought I would have enjoyed but I did yeah sure yeah. sure and and those people that you you're in a group with have they become friends are yeah they... yeah all all of them have become great friends yeah I said um uh, I think I've said before that you don't think you're going to get on with any of them or a couple mm. you, you think you might get on with a couple of them and then yeah in a few weeks in you begin to be become good friends then by the end of it you just you love them all amazing mm. and for you what was that what was the turning point what was the moment where you're like okay i want to follow jesus I, like yeah this is the moment that changed yeah so it was on the alpha weekend away and i begun to accept the fact that i wasn't going to have some sort of sign from god or some feeling happen to me and um uh, yeah and i was sort of telling myself that i was willing to take that sort of i don't know leap of step of faith mm. and trust and trust without anything happening to me and it was at that point when i felt god on me for the first time hard mm. um I, I i felt like i was being filled up from the bottom full of i was being prayed for at the time mm. um something i didn't used to like but I, I felt like i was being filled up um filled up from the bottom from my feet and then strong sort of, it's hard to describe, strong feeling in my chest. Mm. Um, almost like being hit by something, but not uncomfortable, not yeah. no pain. Sure. Just a strong feeling in my chest and my legs, I couldn't stand on my legs. Wow. Um, and I sat down and uh, opened my eyes and I was crying with happy tears. And that was the moment, I'd, the only thing I said is, I know it's true. Wow. And your brother was in the room? Yeah. And so how did you process that with your brother? What, what did you, um, how did you chat about it? What so we went, so, so he saw it all happening. Mm. Um, and then we caught each other just outside and uh, we were actually both uh, really emotional. And he gave me a hug, came up to me, gave me a hug. And he said he'd actually, be, all evening, the only thing he'd prayed for is for me to become a Christian. Wow. And yeah. Wow. So, so how do amazing. you process that? Like, how do you... What were your what your thoughts about what just happened that experience? Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's still hard to get my head around because it's one of those things that it sort of changes it changes everything. Yeah. Now that I actually believe in something. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, d immediately after I went and wrote everything down just so I didn't forget and I can look back and yeah, and uh, and uh, people have asked me have I had second have I second guessed myself since yeah. and sort yeah. of tried to come up with reasons why it didn't happen to me or it wasn't and i haven't i yeah, thought sure. i would have done because i was really skeptical before but sure. i haven't sure and your parents um who obviously you said a, a minute ago they were christians mm -hmm. how did they respond when you told them about the stuff yeah so they they i actually rang them quite soon after um i wrote it all down sent a picture of the email that i'd written to my mum because i knew i wouldn't be able to say it over the phone it was mm. just gonna be too emotional so I sent a picture to her and then phoned her immediately and her and my dad were out for dinner. And <laughs> wow. uh, they've burst out crying at the dinner table. And my mum said that she she knew that she knew, she said that she knew. She, no, she said that something like that needed to happen to me because yeah. she knew how skeptical I was. Amazing. Yeah. So good. Yeah. 
And since then, like, how has your how has it changed? Like, who mm. you are? How has it changed? How you feel about God? How has it changed? How you, yeah, how you go about normal life? So, um, I think I'm just sort of trying to get stuck in as much as I can in terms of church life mm. and um, just being around uh, po- sort of positive people, people with the same sort of mm. mindset as you. Um, and I think it's definitely made me so I, rather than playing something through in my head I know that I have God to turn to mm. and it's not just me making a decision Amazing. it's sort of both of us um, and it sort of gives me I don't know peace uh, making decisions because I, I sort of and I've had to make a couple of hard decisions over the last couple of weeks um, and uh, yeah, I've just felt I thought it was going to be horrendous um, mm. with those decisions like I, I, I had to make um, and it's turned out uh, that I've sort of, I think God has told me that it's the right thing to happen. Mm. And um, I, yeah, I just feel sort of at ease with the situation. So good. Mm. And if someone is thinking currently about whether or not to invite their friend or their brother mm-hmm. or their sister or their sibling um, to Alpha or anything like that, what advice would you give them? 100% do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's one of the best 10 weeks of my life. Alpha weekend was amazing. Uh, something I didn't think that I'd enjoy at all, yeah. and I ended up loving it. And it's sort of probably the most important thing I've ever done. So uh, yeah, if anyone's thinking of doing it, hundred percent, give it a try. Thank you so yeah. much for your time, Gideon. I know awesome. You're Joining us now in the studio is Mark Scalata, who is a theologian who works at St. Paul's Theological Centre and St. Melitus. Not only that, but he's also a parish vicar in Cambridge. He spent a lot of time looking through the book of Exodus. And so Susie's going to interview him now and help us engage in our Sunday series just that little bit deeper. This month in the Bible in One Year and in our Connect Groups, we're looking at the book of Exodus. Mark, you've just written a commentary on the book of Exodus coming out in spring. So tell us, why was the book of Exodus written and who was it written for? Oh, that's a great question. Um, The book of Exodus was written, I think, to tell the story, the history of God's salvation for his people. Um, their deliverance from Egypt, from slavery, from oppression, uh, and their and their promise through the covenant of Moses as they went into uh, into the wilderness and then came out on the other side in the land. And the book of Exodus is really a it's a book of origins. Um, it's the origins of the Israelite people as a nation. Um, prior to Exodus and Genesis. We have uh, the tribe of Abraham and his children, Isaac and Jacob, Um, but we don't have a sense of a, there's no national unity to God's people. It is uh, a tribe of people, and that's whom God, to whom God made his promises and his covenant, whereas in the book of Exodus, it is really the history of the birth of a nation and the birth of Israel as God's holy people and how he's called them out of Egypt, out of slavery and death and 400 years of slavery and death into this wilderness wanderings where the book of Exodus ends um, as a a time of formation for his people, how to, how he's going to take this young uh, infant child, if you will, 
and craft and teach and mold them into what is their calling as, as a nation. So that, I think, is maybe why it was written. Who it was written for is always a big question in Old Testament scholarship, um, <clears throat> where what the original audience was, um, who the original audience was, um, is, always, is always a difficult question. Um, many Old Testament scholars think that the book of Exodus was probably brought together long before, um, well, I guess it depends on who you, you speak to, but long before uh, or the times of, of, of King David and King Solomon, but was likely composed in its final form, um, possibly later around 580, 570 in what they call Babylonian exile. So after the Jews were destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and went off into exile, many biblical scholars think this was maybe the audience uh, to whom uh, the final form was written or for whom the final form was written. And all throughout the book of Exodus, God shows up clearly and in powerful ways. You've already alluded to this a little bit, but perhaps you can speak more into why this was such uh, this particular time was such a special time in history, and why do you think God showed up so powerfully in those moments? Oh gosh, another great question. <laughs> um, I think that the narratives of Exodus are are an ancient history to the Israelites once they're living in the land. So by the time you get to King David, depending on how you do the biblical dating and the period of judges and things like that, you have a period of give or take two to three hundred years of looking back at what God did in Egypt. <clears throat> and so these 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 magnificent i mean they call in exodus they're talking they talk about the signs and the wonders of what god does and i think there is an emphasis on the uh the power and the and the, and the and the strength of god and his power to deliver because the exodus story in the old testament is the the story of deliverance and redemption kind of par excellence like there is there is no other story in the old testament that speaks of uh god kind of entering into our history and our space and time and as it were reaching in and taking out a people from a nation to choose as his own nation and what we find in the rest of the old testament and in the new testament is that is that every Every notion of salvation, every notion of redemption is then is then modeled after or based on the Exodus. And this is what you see straight into the New Testament. Everything that Jesus does and that the gospel writers write about is all about Jesus as the new Exodus. This is the new movement of salvation. So I think that's one reason why there is um, such an emphasis on God's kind of mighty works and his power to save and his power to redeem. I think the other thing is, is that the, the idea of one of the main themes, and this is what I, I, I'm kind of my main argument is in this theological commentary of Exodus, and one thing that I was struck by and I think is is so critical to the whole flow of the narrative of the Bible, but in particular in Exodus. You know, when you look at the Bible from Genesis to Exodus, you see God's presence in Eden as you know as this 
um, and of the fullness of his presence. He dwells with Adam and Eve. He walks in the garden. He is fully present. There is no division. It's only until Adam and Eve disobey and they're expelled from the garden <clears throat> that they lose that connection to a certain extent. And we see in Genesis, um, you know, the Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and others, they have visions of God and they see God. But God is, in Genesis, is still remote. He is still kind of the, the creator God of the heavens. Whereas Exodus is a very different narrative because Exodus is about God's return to earth to dwell with his people. And so the, the title title of the commentary, if I can remember it, is, is, um, is the abiding presence. And so the whole focus and the whole uh, movement of Exodus is God's abiding glory, his abiding presence coming to abide fully with his people for the first time. So at the very end of Exodus, when God's glory comes on the tabernacle, there is this sense of this, this divine connection being made between heaven and earth. <clears throat> so that God is, he has returned to his, redeemed his people and his power, but also returned to his people and, and to dwell in their midst. And this is one of the beautiful things about Exodus. And I think what in my, in my writing and in my research, what I realized is, is that with this emphasis on God's divine presence kind of moving from the burning bush and this image of, you know, kind of this fiery bush that doesn't burn up, and then that being a precursor to Mount Sinai and God's presence on Sinai, and then that being a precursor to finally God's glory in the tabernacle, is that all of these images emphasize God's movement towards humanity or towards his people and God's desire to dwell with his people and be at the heart of his community. And I think that that leads so naturally and so beautifully into kind of the incarnation of Jesus because this is, you know, God's desire is set in motion, as it were, in the Old Testament and in the book of Exodus in particular, more so than anywhere else, um, but really becomes you know, the, the, excuse the pun, but the flesh and bones in the New Testament. And I, and I think that's a, a wonderful movement that the New Testament authors really take up, this idea of, of God incarnate. I mean, especially in John's, you know, the beginning of John's gospel in John 1. So, so I think that's a very long way of answering your question, but I think the, the answer is, is I think this is the only time in history, in the history of Israel, where God comes down and makes his home on earth. And so the rest of the Bible and the rest of the story is about Israel living and hopefully living in holiness because they have this holy God in their midst. Um, and then later you get to the destruction of the tabernacle, or the, sorry, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And then one of the last prophets, Ezekiel, has a vision ultimately of God's glory returning to the temple, but we're never really told that that happens in the Old Testament, even, even after the exile. Let's talk more about how this narrative moves into the New Testament. Obviously, with the story of Moses and the life of Jesus, there are some significant parallels. What are some of the most profound examples of that parallel that you've discovered? Oh, the the most profound. There are there are a lot of them. I mean, I, I think, I think discovering. 
I think my favorite thing about going through John's gospel was um, in, because the way that the commentary is set up as I was doing it is um, you have kind of the Old Testament, you know, you look at the, the passage in Exodus, and then at the end of each chapter, there's a New Testament section. And so what I did was just try to draw out themes from you know, whether it was the burning bush or um, the divine name or whether it was, you know, passing through the waters and the sea and, and going into the wilderness, whatever it was, tried to kind of make some of these New Testament connections. And I think two two of the most kind of profound connections were one was was watching how the gospel of Matthew literally takes the Exodus narrative and and uses from the birth of Jesus up until his Sermon on the Mount, it is almost an exact retracing. So we have the birth of Jesus, and then we remember he flees to Egypt, and Matthew quotes Hosea, um, out of Egypt I have called my son, and so Jesus is this representative of Israel. He comes back from his his exile out of Egypt, comes to be baptized by John the Baptist, following Israel's baptism in the in the parting of the waters and the Red Sea. <clears throat> and then as Jesus comes up from the baptism, he goes into the wilderness. As Israel comes up from the sea, they go into the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus goes in to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, Satan quotes Deuteronomy in several occasions, and Jesus quotes Deuteronomy back, the law, which is part uh, in the Old Testament. And then... After the wilderness, um, just as Moses goes up Mount Sinai, Jesus goes in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 5, to preach his Sermon on the Mount. And so there is just an absolute kind of tracing of the Exodus story of Matthew saying to his readers, like just giving them every every hint and every <laughs> pretty, pretty blatant hint uh, to say, this is the new Exodus. This is the new Moses. This is... Jesus, who preaches uh, his Sermon on the Mount, who is not explaining a new law, but taking the divine law given to Moses on Mount Sinai and the covenant um, in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, and explaining, in, again, not changing the law, because there's that Matthew, I think it's 5.17, that says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And it's Jesus's way of interpreting the law to say, you know, God's law is holy and just, but here's how I want you to understand it. You know, if you think that, you know, adultery is just going and sleeping around with somebody, I'm here to tell you that actually adultery is a matter of the heart. That you, If you even look at someone lustfully, you know, then you've broken the law. Um, and, you know, and, and all of those things about kind of interpreting the depth of the law, not, not, not canceling out the law, but, in, but seeing it for, for what God's, what that level of holiness God is calling us to. So anyway, that, that was one thing. Um, the other thing about, about Moses and Jesus, and what I hadn't realized really until I sunk deeply into this commentary was, one of the things growing up is, you know, around Easter time, we always read the passages of uh, Isaiah 42 and 43 and of the suffering servant. And and always we point to, you know, and I think rightfully so, I think we point to uh, the suffering servant is Isaiah's prophecy of Jesus and his suffering and, and so forth. But what I hadn't realized is that, is that 
Isaiah doesn't just come up with that image kind of out of the blue. He just doesn't come up with the notion of a suffering servant as if, you know, it just popped into his head one day. And what I realized was in reading Exodus and what you see in the life of Moses is you see this, well, one, you see the growth of Moses over his, you know, the course of his life, but you see this self-sacrificing and suffering love that Moses has for the people of Israel and that he is willing, and I think this comes to its culmination in Exodus uh, 32, I think it's Exodus 32, um, when Moses says to God, you know, wipe me out from the book of life and, and that they might survive, basically, that Israel might survive because God has said, I'm going to wipe them, I'll wipe them out and then I'll make you a new nation. And there is that, what you see in Exodus is, and I think what is so profound is that this, this journey in faith that Moses is called on, and I think that all of us are called on, as we draw near to God, and as he draws us out as, as a shepherd of other people, there is this sense of there will be suffering that goes along with it. And, and it's the suffering of Moses for the sake of the people. And Moses, in many ways, though, you know, later on in the book of Numbers, um, Moses disobeys God's command and he's not allowed to go into the promised land. So Israel is. But in his final sermon, kind of uh, on the plains of Moab in the book of Deuteronomy, Modus, Moses uh, ascends Mount Nebo and disappears, and, and presumably he's assumed into heaven. But there is this sense of Moses is kind of the classic vision of someone who has a heart after God's own heart, who will suffer for the sake of the people, for God's people, or for the sheep, if we use the shepherd metaphor. And that, I think, struck me so much about in terms of what Isaiah was doing with his kind of suffering servant and where he was getting that, and then how much that connected to Christ and Christ's willingness to lay down his life for the sheep and, and Christ's connection to Moses on so many different levels. But I think that was maybe one of the most profound because I hadn't thought of why suffering for God's people was so important and why that kind of wholehearted, lifelong pursuit of, of, of knowing who God is, alongside that comes the potential of a lot of suffering, you know, for God's glory. And I think that was, that was amazing to see that in Moses, because I hadn't, I hadn't really seen that before. I hadn't really known where that, that image came from. And then it just kind of clicked and, <laughs> and it made more sense. <laughs> How do you think a book like Exodus written, it's in the Old Testament, it was written at a particular time in history for a particular group or nation of people. How do you think that particular narrative can be relevant or applicable in our everyday lives? What does it mean for us as we learn to be disciples of Jesus ourselves? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah. There's, <laughs> if we have another couple hours, we could go up for like that. <laughs> I'll highlight a few of them that I highlight for my students. I mean, one I think is, I mean, one of the most um, amazing things I think that's developed in, in maybe the first two chapters of Exodus um, in the Egyptian kind of bondage and slavery is, 
is what you see happening in those first, what you see developing out of those first two chapters is really a theology of oppression. And God's God's complete hatred for oppression, you know, whether it's his people oppressing other people or whether it's Egypt oppressing his people, it is God's um, just absolute abhorrence of the vulnerable and the weak being oppressed by the powerful. And and you get the sense in the first couple of chapters, and I think throughout Exodus, but especially in the first uh, in the first few chapters of of this universal principle of God, that God always sides with the vulnerable and the poor, and that even in the later in the prophets, especially in the prophet Amos and Hosea, um, you know that the when the Israelites become the oppressor, you know God is very clear about His coming judgment on them. Um, so I think you know one thing Exodus gives us, if nothing else, as a Christian audience, is a sense of kind of the natural the natural rhythms of creation and and God's pleasure in the natural rhythms of creation and yet when that's destroyed by human institutions of oppression um, and human institutions that bind people you know uh, whether it's a 21st century institution that binds people in the slavery of you know who knows making coffee beans producing you know in in some third world country or whatever it might be, that that I think is something that Christians should know is is abhorrent to God. I mean, you know, it, it is just, you know, God despises that regime or that human institution like Pharaoh's institution of slavery that 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 binds people and seeks to release people. So I think Exodus has a very, <laughs> I, won't, I won't stray too far into liberation theology, Alex knows about that. Um, but <clears throat> but I will say that, that I think that there is certainly um, an argument for not only not only spiritual liberation that God's desire, and I think this is, you know, tends to be the more Christian approach, is that God releases us from our sin, pulls us, you know, through the waters of baptism up, and that's, and I think that's definitely it. But I think also on the other side, we can't forget about the uh, the real physical world um, that there are people who are physically oppressed in slavery, in um, you know child trafficking, um, in in all of these types of things, and that I think that there's so much in Exodus that speaks against that. That um, you know, and so much in the Gospels that speaks against that also. But I think that's a, a, a really important thing to take away from the book um, in terms of in terms of how it speaks to to institutional, not just slavery, but institutional bondage or oppression on people. And I think Christians are called to 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 do as much as they can to alleviate that, to bring justice and to bring um, and to bring God's righteousness into that um, into those situations. I mean, I think also, I think one of the things that struck me about the about Moses um, <clears throat> and about his journey of faith, and I think this is you know because sometimes I knew growing up, growing up in my church in the states. I often had this feeling that you know the Holy Spirit, <laughs> the Holy Spirit was really just a New Testament thing <laughs> that didn't really exist in the Old Testament, or if it did, it only happened in certain instances or something like that. Like maybe David 
was inspired to play the harp or something like that. Um, but one of the things that struck me about Exodus's portrayal of Moses, and I think this maybe is also a good model for Christians, is not only what we spoke of before, Moses's love for the people and his and his shepherd's heart. I think that is a you know is a wonderful example. But the one thing that I was so struck about was, um, or struck by, was the portrayal of Moses. And I think they might hear a sermon on this at some point. Uh, those at HTV will hear a sermon on this at some point. But, but this one, this one incident in 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 Exodus thirty four, uh, Moses says to to God after he's seen God after he's you know in Exodus thirty three he speaks to God face to face and all of these things. And Moses says, show me your glory. And it's this, it's this request that is one to reestablish the covenant that's been broken in uh, the sin of the golden calf. So they need to reestablish the covenant or remake the covenant. But this, this idea of show me your glory is you know, this amazing depiction of Moses who has tasted so much. I mean, I think Moses was a mystic at the end of the day because Moses has tasted so much of the divine presence. He's been in God's presence, you know, 40 days and 40 nights on the mountains, you know, not eating, not drinking, and yet he's he's drinking in God's divine glory, and yet he's pleading for more. And God says, you know, I'll reveal my name and we have the revelation of the divine name. But then Moses comes down the mountain and he is shining, right? He has God's glory kind of, uh, you know, this, this, this beautiful glory uh, beaming from his face. And it's said that, you know, and we know that this is God's glory because everybody falls down because they're afraid or basically they're afraid and they turn their face. So Moses decides to put a veil on. And actually, interestingly enough, we're never told in the rest of the Old Testament whether his glory ever faded. Now, later in uh, Corinthians, Paul talks about um, about Moses's glory fading, but but in the in the Pentateuch, in Exodus and Numbers, we're never told about it uh, it fading. Anyway, but the point, what I think is so fascinating, what I found so fascinating about this is that even in the Old Testament, uh, before we come to the incarnation of Christ, the authors of the Old Testament, the authors of, the, of Exodus had a vision of humanity's capacity to bear divine glory. And I found that so absolutely Kind of humbling because I was so you know as a Christian I thought oh well if you know if you don't have the Holy Spirit you know or if you know you don't believe in Jesus and this and that and to to see that in Moses and to see his you know and again I think this going back to this Genesis one twenty seven and twenty eight and the authors of the Bible taking this notion of of God creating us in His image and likeness. And then taking that a step further or extending that in Moses, because Moses is the only one in the entire Old Testament, in the entire Bible, apart from Jesus and the Transfiguration, um, that is said to have kind of borne the glory of God. And so this is why Moses is so unique in the Old Testament. but, But the fact that Moses... A human being and a, a sinful human being. I mean, Moses murdered the Egyptian. He wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't guiltless. Um, can somehow. Can somehow bear the glory of God is just an absolute. 
a kind of mystery of the Old Testament. I mean, I think it is something that is so, so beautiful and, and is ultimately, and I think as a Christian for me, is, is such a testimony to the biblical authors of understanding of who we are as human beings, who God is, his desire to be with, not only with us, but to be in us, to be to be kind of flowing through us. And that is, you know, becomes the example for what I think Israel was meant to be. You know, Moses is the the kind of human image of what Israel was to be collectively as a nation, um, but what they never lived up to, you know, as the history goes on. But then that, to me, at least as a Christian, again, that just leads so naturally into if Moses being made in the image and likeness of God could bear the divine glory, then how much more so when we come to the Son of God, you know, in the fullness. And this is when I think you just get into John's gospel and you can just <laughs> just kind of linger for a long time in some of John's uh, in some of John's dialogues. Um, you know, Jesus about, you know, I and the Father are one and, you know, this this you know, glorifying the Father and all of these kinds of uh, images that come out in John that are so um, are so resonant with the Exodus text. So I think it's, it's you know, it, it is a fascinating thing. I think one of the things that struck me and, and what maybe other readers will get out of the, out of the series uh, as you go kind of, as you go through the book of Exodus and talk about some of the topics. And I think one of the things that strikes me, what I hope people get out of the commentary is just how, this book and this event in Exodus is kind of the most significant act of salvation in the entire Bible apart from the cross, and that the that the whole life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is all interpreted within the life of Israel and their salvation. And, you know, even, even when you get to the book of Revelation— you still don't get away from Exodus because you have all of the, you have all the series of plagues in Revelation, which is all a, you know, kind of a retelling of the plagues of Exodus. It's just the final, you know, it's the final plagues. And then Jesus coming in, the, in you know, Revelation 21, you know, and, and, and that's the, the summation of the God in Exodus who says, build me a tabernacle so I can dwell in the midst of my people is summed up in Revelation 21 when it says, behold, uh, you know, God, there is no more, there is no more temple because God's presence is dwelling with, with humanity. And so it's a, you know, it's a neat way to sum up the entire Bible. So I hope, but I hope when people read Exodus, I hope they do read it and um, that they'll just begin to make those connections. Cause I think that those connections in the new Testament are, are constantly there in the life of Christ. And I think you know, also for the church, I think, you know, if the church is the new representation, I don't think the church supersedes or, or kind of um, makes the nation of Israel uh, kind of nothing or makes, you know, kind of cuts them off and we're tied into the, the, the roots of this history. Um, but if the church takes on those characteristics of what Israel was first called to and being kind of a light to the nations, being a holy people, all of these kinds of things, um, then I think the Exodus is such a, such a critical book to, to understand, to, to kind of see the wholeness of um, 
the message of God's you know kind of movement of His salvation in history, and then how that you know how that affects what the church's responsibility is today. Marcus, beautiful. <laughs> I for one can't wait to read this commentary. That's incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to explore that with yeah, us. Yeah, it was lovely to be here with you. And now sit back and enjoy as Amelia from our 24-7 prayer room and furnace community leads us through a reflection on being in the presence of God. Let me tell you about his presence. It's the place where all fear leaves. It's the place where you have full approval. It's the place where we discover heaven's design for our lives. And it's the place where we are made to dwell and it is holy. The Bible tells us that we are lifeless and lost without it. So why does it often feel so hard to access? In C.S. Lewis's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, some children find an amazing new world when they step through a wardrobe. However, the longer they stay away from the wardrobe, the more they forget the time they've spent in Narnia. I see God's presence a bit like Narnia. It's there, but when we begin to make choices that take us away from the intimate space of God's presence, and we all do it, Narnia becomes a foggy memory all too quickly. God says he is with us always. So it's more about our attitudes to him, those around us and ourselves, that lead us to unknowingly drift away from connection with his presence. No one else can do this part of life for you, and it wouldn't really make sense if they did. Your relationship with God is yours and his. There are no fast tracks to this one, I'm afraid, but there is so much beauty in the pursuit. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. In Matthew's Gospel, we read, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. This guy didn't even belong where he had stumbled. So rest assured that you don't need to be anything to have the full access into God's presence that Jesus bought for you to have but it does still cost us. It costs us our choices and priorities. It costs us sacrificing our precious time to seek him out. There's a lyric in a song that goes, the more I seek you, the more I find you. The more I find you, the more I love you. When was the last time you set things aside so that it was just you and God? Take five minutes right now if you can or pause this and do it later. Keep some paper close to hand so you can note down anything you sense God might be saying to you. First, find a quiet spot and close your eyes. Father, thank you for your desire to connect with me. God, help me become more aware of your presence today and this week. Make me aware of your affection and the nudges you are giving me. Lord, use this time to speak into my heart and my mind. Grow in me a desire to seek you with my whole heart and forgive me where I keep stumbling. Help make my walk with you one that is truly intentional and intimate. Amen. Be aware of the distractions, the to-do list, the sounds of ticking clocks and traffic around you as you begin to drown them out of your thoughts. Relax and focus on your breathing. 
Then become aware of God's presence with and around you. What does that feel like? What are you aware of? If anything comes into your mind to distract you, just acknowledge it and set it aside and return your attention to Jesus. Allow the Holy Spirit to open your imagination. Is there a favorite place you like to go? Imagine Jesus with you there. Notice what it's like in his presence. Go explore where he's taking you and what he's showing you. You can return to this place again and again, and for longer times the more you practice and stretch this muscle. You can book out an hour in the prayer room just for you. Nothing will transform you or your journey with God more than spending time in his presence. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the HTB Discipleship Podcast. If you have any feedback, comments or suggestions, please email us at discipleship at htb.org. Thank you so much for listening. 